everyone, and welcome to the Rumcast. We are the podcast that talks all things rum-related with the people who love and shape it. My name is John Gulla. Here with me through the magic of the internet is Will Hookinga, and together we form the dynamic duo we call the Rumcast. And Will, it doesn't get much more dynamic than today's episode, where we interview none other than one Jeff Beachbumberry, author of numerous books on tiki, a tiki personality, owner of Latitude 29 in New Orleans, an icon. I, I, it might be faster to list all the things he hasn't done at this point, Will, than keep going. <laughs> a certified um, legend. Yeah. But we did have a great time discussing a bunch of things in the interview. Um, but first... We've had a lot of good feedback, Will, from our most recent episode on our rum wish list. And That's right. well, I know you wanted to share some of that, too. We, we put the call out there for reactions to the previous episode where John and I came up with eight rums collectively that we kind of wish existed. Maybe kind of holes, gaps in some existing rum lineups from certain distilleries or certain categories, that kind of thing. So we threw out a bunch of our own ideas. You can go back and listen to that episode if you haven't yet, after you listen to this one with Jeff <laughs> Beachman Barry, of course. But uh, basically, we want to know, what do you think of our ideas? What ideas do you have? What resonates with you? What would you like to see out there that doesn't currently exist? And we got some really good feedback. Um, number one, I, I want to start with just a, a, a pat on the back of myself, of course, uh, from, uh, it's so humble of you. <laughs> yeah, I know. But Mike Streeter wrote in and said, sign me up for a, a case, not a bottle, but a case, a case of the Mount Gay Worthy Park collab, which was my idea of, you know, what if the, some of the other Barbados and Jamaica distilleries were kind of eye and probitas and being like, you know, which is the Foursquare and Hampton collab mm-hmm. and being like, oh, we should do our own spin on this. And, you know, my idea was why not Mount Gay and Worthy Park? Get a little rivalry going. So we've already got uh, at least one case sold, Mount Gay and Worthy <laughs> Park, if you're listening. I'm sure there are many more cases that could be yeah. sold of that. We and also... Will, I- I know you don't follow social a lot, but did you see the response also there on Instagram? There was I at didn't. least two or, th- two or three people that said, we need to make the Zan Kong and Maggie Campbell show a real thing. <laughs> like, we, we need to figure a way to do this. Yeah, uh, that would I would listen to that show for sure. Uh, I mean, I'll start a, start a group chat or something with them and just, you know, plant the seed, get it, get the conversation started. I think we should go full on reality TV show with them <laughs> and just like, Camera you crew, know, just yeah, yeah, do the whole thing and, and then chronicle the making of it coming together there'll be drama yeah uh, it'll be it'll be fantastic yeah. yeah so someone's gonna have to relocate i don't know how that's gonna work out but um we also we got an email from uh joe from the long island rum society and he really uh connected with john your idea of you know that saint lucia distillers needs to do something to replicate the profile of the legendary uh, Hamilton St. Lucia releases from yes. Ed Hamilton, who shares a connection with Jeff Berry that we get into in this interview coming up. But uh, Joe said, that is one of my favorite bottles of rum. St. Lucia Distillers just doesn't want to unleash the beast. They can be a powerhouse rum nation like Jamaica, Barbados, and Guyana if they would release more pot still rum from single stills at cast strength or yes. at least higher ABV. To me, that is the huge hole in the rum market and one I wish would get filled. So that was kind of a big yeah. emphatic plus one of your idea. And that works really well together with, I, I'm sure you saw the news this week, that uh, Margaret Monplaisir 
of St. Lucia Distillers that she was nominated the new president of Worspa, right? Yes. So, uh, the, is, it, is it president or chairman? I can't remember, I can't remember the I exact right. title. Chairperson. Yes. Yeah, of, of, yeah, of Worspa. But um, yeah, chair, chairman, chairperson fits really with, with the brand as well. Chairman's Reserve. Oh, um, that's right. There you go. <laughs> So yeah, that was that was good. We we had a a good response as well from Jim Hayward of the Atomic Grog website and blog that some of you may be familiar with. And he pointed out that there is one collab out there that is somewhat similar to the other idea I threw out there of a mm-hmm. Probotas-esque collaboration where I said, you know, Demerara Distillers has a one-third share in National Rums of Jamaica. Why not do something with DDL and either Long Pond or Clarendon or both Long Pond and Clarendon and DDL? Mm-hmm. And he pointed out that there is a new special 100-proof uh, blend that the Maikai, which is a legendary bar down there in, in your neck of the woods, I believe. Right. Not, it's a little bit outside Miami, but but not too far from that area. And it was basically a a blend that was put together with West Indies Rum Distillery and Long Pond. So kind of, uh, you know, different take on that, but something that is out there, apparently, if you go to the Maikai. I've not tried that myself, but it is out there. And then uh, last but not least, I wanted to point out that Kevin Crossman uh, of the Ultimate Mai Tai chimed in. He said, what we really need is a 97 proof planners punch rum. Your Smith and Cross competitor comes close, but I'm thinking something like Worthy Park 97 or Karuba 97. And this ties in really well with one of the topics we get into with Jeff, which is Mm -hmm. when he was talking about he's had the opportunity to try so many of these rums that don't exist anymore that did exist, you know, in the 30s or 40s, 50s. I may be getting a little ahead of myself on dates, but, you know, a while back ago, back when mm-hmm. Don the Beachcomber and Trader Vic were in their heyday, um, they had all these higher strength Jamaican rums that just don't exist anymore. And are, you know, so much stuff has just been toned down to 80 proof. And that's a, a topic that we get into with him. And, um, you know, he approaches it from the perspective of how that impacts and changes and alters cocktails and how you have to adjust from there. And it's something that you and I always talk about from the other angle of just neat drinking and how a little bit can go such a long way when you mm-hmm. get above 80 proof. So plus one right back at you, Kevin, on that idea and something I'm looking forward to people hearing about on this episode. But with all that said, this was a super, super fun interview and one that I, you know, there, there's certain people you just have in the back of your mind where it's like, yeah, yeah at some point I know, we're going to try to have that person on the podcast. And Jeff was one of those people. And, you know, probably once a month or so, we have someone asking us, Hey, you know who, you, you know who y'all should get on the podcast? Mm-hmm. Jeff Barry. Yeah. And we go, Oh, how come we didn't think of that yet? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, we, we really, we always do appreciate suggestions for sure. So yeah, please. Well, and the stars sometimes, you know, the stars have to align but for things yeah. to work out and we finally got it. And I have to say, well, I, I do think he delivered. Um, yes. There's a reason why Jeff Beachbum Barry is out there the way he is. And I think, uh, you know, his personality, in addition to all of the knowledge that he brings to the table, is really present. And that comes through in the interview. So it was very nice talking to him and very uh, eager to share with people. Yeah, there was so much, you know, to bite off in this interview. It's one of those, you know, sometimes you have an interview and it's fairly straightforward of what you're going to talk about with someone like Jeff who has this long history of you know, super interesting work and all these different aspects. You know, he he has the 
the tiki history of you know decoding legendary recipes like the zombie he has opening his own bar in new orleans latitude 29 then he also has putting out his own rum products with ed hamilton which is something really cool that's come out of the last few years they did a zombie blend they did a navy grog blend together and just getting into all those topics and also just um jeff is someone who you and i've talked about this who we both just really enjoy as a writer like if you're someone who's not that into i like neither you nor myself are mm-hmm. what I would call tiki people. Um, I, you know, I enjoy a tiki cocktail. I enjoy going to a tiki bar. You know, I don't yeah. have, I don't have the shirts. I don't own the mugs or anything like that. Uh, okay. Yeah. You got a couple of shirts, yeah. but um, you know, Jeff's books like potion of the potions of the Caribbean, which is sort of like a history of the Caribbean told through the lens of cocktails. And it's just fabulous writing and really interesting if, if you're into uh, drinks history and things of that nature. I'd really recommend checking it out. And he mm-hmm. has a, a very entertaining yet also interesting style of writing. It's and, and the books are just, you know, the the illust- the, the, the graphics and then the pictures, the uh, cover and everything. It's just a, a really well crafted artifact, I guess one could say so. Highly recommend checking that out. Um, Sip and Safari is another great book as well that kind of details Jeff's own journey and figuring out all these old recipes and hunting down bartenders, you know, who who worked for Don the Beachcomber and getting like getting the secrets out of them and things like that. So it's a really cool kind of like cocktail detective history mm-hmm. almost. But with all that said, we're going to get into all of that and more with Jeff uh, in the next hour and 15 minutes or so of this episode. So we really enjoyed it. And we hope all of you do as well. We are here with Jeff Barry, who you may also know as Beach Bum Barry, author of books like Beach Bum Barry's Grog Log, Intoxica, Sip and Safari, Potions of the Caribbean, owner of Latitude 29 in New Orleans, the decoder of the zombie, and scores of other classic tiki cocktails. Also Hollywood veteran and writer of iconic movie taglines, I recently learned. Uh, a really cool fun fact I want to talk about at some point later, Jeff. Um, so many, super, so many superlatives. Jeff's uncomfortable. Yeah, no. <laughs> we'll ease into it. Uh, but anyway, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Yeah, I, I think maybe at least once a, a month for the last year, we'll get an email. It's like, hey, when are you guys having Jeff Barry on? And, and you've yeah. been on our list for so long. So, um, wait, it's oh, really, one a month? Yeah, at least uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, it's maybe two a month every now and then. Oh, okay, you know, I feel but, better. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a high frequency relative to other personalities. But um, one thing you've said before is that you're a tiki and cocktails person more than you are a rum person. Um, and John and I, I think, are the exact opposite on this podcast. We're rum people who occasionally wade into tiki and cocktails. So what I'm hoping we can do is kind of meet in the middle and sort of pull each other back and forth because I think these days it's it's really hard to get into one of those things without to some degree getting into mm-hmm. the other like oh, even, I'm, I'm happy to talk about rum I mean oh yeah it's uh that's that's not a problem <laughs> I didn't I didn't mean to sell you too short on your on your your rum credentials I mean I you know I've got the bottle right here I know rum is a huge part of of your life as well but um 
you know, I, I think there are a lot of rum people who may never even drink cocktails at all, but they've been to a tiki bar at some point because if you want to drink great rum in most cities, that's going to be the place to do it. Um, right. So I'm interested to see how those kind of overlap. But I've been reading back through some of your books, going over interviews and stuff this week. And one thing that really stuck out to me, especially as I was going back through Sip and Safari, was that I feel like this there's this whole air of mystery as you're working to uncover these drinks and like, you know, bartenders who are holding these long, closely held secrets and everything. And I maybe this is just because I'm not as in in deep with the tiki world, but I feel like there's less mystery than ever in, in the world of cocktails. And I think we talked about this with Martin Kate, and he said part of it's because people, you know, want to know what they're drinking and eating at all times these days. But I wanted to get your take on just like, do you feel that there's less mystery now? And do you feel like that takes away from the experience at all? No, not at all. Um, Jim Meehan, uh, you probably know a very famous bartender yeah. in PDTM. And he said that right now, the, the ethos of the craft cocktail world, which was not the world I grew up in, I grew up in the cocktail dark ages before that, is <laughs> open sourcing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, mm. publish your recipes, get them out there. Um, there's a whole new world of people who are making cocktails at home on a level that they never used to do before. I mean, when when people used to make cocktails at home, they would make a martini or Manhattan or maybe an old fashioned. But now there are home bartenders who I've talked to. I do a lot of events around the country mm -hmm. and in the EU, and um, these people are just like they're beasts. <laughs> you know? They've got like the a the aviary book, the Death and Co book. Yeah, they're doing the they're, Jungle Bird with like the little like beads in it and stuff. Oh my god! They, I mean, they they're they they scare me. They're so good, you know. So <laughs> Martin's right about that. I mean, the level of um, the customer uh, awareness is mm -hmm. much higher. But I think that really the the elephant in the room here is just the internet. Yeah. If it wasn't for the internet, nobody would be doing any of this stuff. And also, as much as we love the internet for promulgating good drinking and uh, an awareness of good brands and when it comes to rum and elevating the category and, and all this, the level of misinformation mm. that gets recirculated and goes viral on the internet is sometimes, I could spend my entire life policing that if I yeah, wanted yeah. to, you know, oh, which yeah. I don't just like let it lie. But, you know, a lot of people are get, are walking around with more information than ever, but it's all wrong. Yeah. It's like going from mystery to misinformation and yeah. debunking the, the misinformation is a lot less fun than uncovering the mysteries probably. Yeah, it's, it's a double-edged sword, you know? So um, also the gatekeepers have disappeared. And I, you know, when I, when I was tr first writing, I hated the gatekeepers. I'm talking about mm -hmm. magazine editors. I'm talking about, mm -hmm. Uh, publishers, I'm talking about film producers, I'm talking about everybody in the media who stopped people from creating content yeah. because it wasn't what they wanted to finance. Now that you can create content on your computer and anybody can be a writer who gets published, self-published um, or published on the internet, I almost wish the gatekeepers were still around because there are people who have really no business writing about the subject who just become self-appointed experts they shall remain nameless. There are many of them. Um, it's just and, like Hollywood. Oh, please. Same yeah, thing. don't get me started about that. Yeah, but um, the, the other problem is that um, you have self-appointed experts and their site, their blog gets hits for some reason. All of a sudden, their word is gospel. 
Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, this really awful brand of rum that's got all kinds of additives and doped with uh, you know glycerin and all this stuff, which happens to be their favorite rum of some blogger who happens to have a good name for their blog and they get lots mm-hmm. of hits on Google. All of a sudden, that rum is on everybody's lips. And right. people come into my bar and say, do you have this rum? And we say, no. The last thing you ever want to do is insult the taste of a customer. Yeah, right. No, we don't have the Z word rum, but we do have <laughs> this rum, which you know, which uh, which might you know fill that um, part of your palate. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. I mean, it's always a matter of guiding people away from the bad and toward the good without hurting their feelings. But I think I got us off track. The question was about mystery, and mystery was definitely the reason I got into all this. I mean, I, if if everything was out there when I first started drinking these drinks, I wouldn't have had to go to all the trouble I did. I yeah, probably never yeah. would have written a book and, and never would have talked to these old bartenders and gotten their stories because I wouldn't have had to. Having said that, that was primary research. That was shoe leather. That was actually talking to people who were alive and who had been in the golden age of tiki and who had practiced the craft. And now I do feel a little bit of a lot of sympathy, rather, for people who are getting into mixography now who are writing about drinks. You can't really do primary research about that era anymore because everybody's passed on. Right. Right? I mean, if you, if you took the trouble to be a professional and track down people, you might not find anybody. So I happen to be in the right place at the right time, um, for once. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and, and speaking of that kind of thing, in terms of like you mentioned, now it's open source, but there was all these things that you had to do and research in the past. I know the New York Times, and I think it was Wayne Curtis, called you the Indiana Jones of Tiki Drinks. And uh, of course, you also wear a trademark hat, so you have that in common. Um, first off, I wanted to ask you, which of Indiana Jones films is the best? And second... Oh, so- Oh, yeah. go, go. Yeah. Let's start there. Let's say which of those is the best because that's going to qualify the rest of us. <laughs> it's definitely, definitely the first one. Um, although, okay. although the one with Sean Connery as his dad was pretty good too, I thought. Yes. Yeah, sh- it, it doesn't have a lot of uh, respect among Spielberg fans, but I, I thought it was one of the better ones. So, yeah. I, I'm I'm so torn with Dial of Destiny, the new one that's coming out, because as a big Indiana Jones fan myself, I want to see it. But at the same time, I'm like, please don't hurt this precious character any further than they did already. But um, I think it's it's going to happen. <laughs> I don't have high hopes. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I also wanted to ask then, do you ever feel any sense of that rush of discovery as you uncovered a rum and, and tiki things that were previously kind of lost to history? How does that feel when that happens? Oh, it's great because when the when the barriers are finally starting to break down, this thing you wanted to know so badly, why did you want to know it so badly? That's another problem for me and my psychiatrist, I guess. I mean, <laughs> I can only really get serious about trivial things, I guess. But uh, but I'm talking to fellow travelers here. I mean, we're all nerding out on this. Yeah, same we have stuff. a podcast about rum, so come on. Yeah. yeah. So okay, so we're we're among friends. Um, there's. It was great. I mean, it was great to make these discoveries. And, and at the time, you know, we're talking about the 90s, early aughts, up mm-hmm. into the mid-aughts. I really thought I was the only person in the entire world who was interested in this stuff. And I didn't think it was worth crowing about that I had cracked this recipe. And when I wrote Sip and Safari, I didn't even bother to go into that. The first version in 2007. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I just presented the recipes as like, well, who cares how I found them? You know, what's the big deal? There's going to be 10 people interested in this. And <laughs> it was only in retrospect, that's why I had to put out the 10-year anniversary volume is in retrospect, people kept asking, well, how'd you find these things? And it's like, 
I guess that was kind of cool. Yeah, I think um, in, in reading back through it, and I, I would encourage anyone, because I know we have a lot of people who listen to the podcast that are just into rum and maybe, you know, not deep into Tiki. Like, I try to tell those people, you should get Jeff's books, particularly Sip and Safari and Potions, because um, just the the, the 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 history and the the storytelling going into the discovery of that and potions really has a ton of great history and stuff in it um, it's so well done so there's so much there but one of the things you know you're talking about the boots on the ground research talking to the actual people and you had these bar bartenders who worked at Don the Beach or places like that who had these closely held secret recipes for decades how did you go about getting them? To reveal their secrets, because I've I've seen you write that you you had a buddy, um, Ted, Ted High, I think his name was, Ted, Ted, yeah, and and he would kind of he, like he was the one who would really get them to open up, and when you would talk to them, they would just tell you you know rum and fruit juice, and and that was it. So like <laughs> they told did... that to Ted too, but he was he was persistent. I mean he's he's the extrovert to my introvert. Um, did you ever work up those skills? Did you learn those from him? Is it just persistence, or like how, like how I, do you get there? Well, for me, it was a little longer road. For Ted, um, for example, there was a place called um, Madame Wu's in Santa Monica. There's just this Chinese restaurant, but the bartender there had worked at on the beach commerce, mm-hmm. which I only knew because I looked at the cocktail menu, which in itself was weird at the time to have a cocktail menu. I mean, nobody had those. Mm. Uh, and it was all Don the Beachcomber's greatest hits. I said, did you ever work at it? He said, yeah. So I actually just didn't work up the gun. I've been told rum and fruit juice so many times by different people. I'd never even asked him out of respect. You know, I just didn't want to put him on the spot like that. Right. But I bring Ted over for the first time because I was all excited. This guy can make Don the Beach cover drinks. You know, we've never tasted anything like these. They're amazing. So he comes in and he's he, in his best Jimmy Stewart voice is going, uh, Tony, what's in this drink? <laughs> you know, and, and he actually gave him some recipes. And that was the that was the first of it. How I finally got some of these people to open up um, was I got the first book published. Okay. Uh, and I was able to show them. Here, look, see, what I'm trying to do is pay homage to you guys. I mean, I'm calling you out by name. I'm saying this is by you, and I'm telling your stories, and um, maybe you want to – and that's how the Tiki Tea first gave me some of their recipes and uh, other other old gentlemen I met who were previously loath to do so. Even if they hadn't tended bar in 20 years and they were retired, they still just never wanted to give it up. You know, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, but, uh, but that's how I did it. They, just by having a calling card. Yeah, I was going to say, this, it's almost like a business card at that point. It is. It's like, <laughs> even though it's this little spiral-bound thing put up by a comic book publisher in San Jose, you know, also having to be into this stuff, um, and nobody expected it to go anywhere, at least of all me, but it did help me actually get that second round of more important, rarer recipes. Um, speaking to rum, though, I mean, you're talking, you were talking earlier about the thrill of discovery. Yeah. Let's skew this more toward rum. I and mean, one of the biggest discoveries I made was most rum people come at this world differently from me. Mm-hmm. They're into rum. They go down that rum rabbit hole. And then they start drinking rum drinks. For me, it was the exact opposite. I was okay. drinking these rum drinks. I didn't know what was in them. Nobody was telling me what was in them. Um, but they were delicious. And then I finally started to get some recipes. And I saw they called out very specific rums. Mm-hmm. most of which were extinct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I mean, the, the Don the Beachcomber recipe book would call out things like 20-year-old Infierno 
I was like, what the hell is that? And I had no idea. I didn't even know that was a run. You know, it's just I, I'm, I'm imagining the employee's face if you go to the store and say, "Do you have any 20 year old Inferno rum?" <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's just like, and uh, and they would start calling out 91.4 proof Demerara rum. They'd call out Hudson's Bay, Jamaican. They would call out uh, Golden Stag. I had no idea what Golden Stag was. Mm-hmm. If if that was even a rum, you know, and uh, uh, they would call out 97 proof doctor. They would call it dagger, like a lot of uh, Ray and nephew dagger rums, and um, which I guess was like the go-to heavy punch rum. Aside from Puerto Rican rum, it was really hard in the 90s to find any of this stuff anywhere in a liquor store. Um, once I found a 151 proof Demerara rum, where the hell were you going to get that? You know, just like um, I didn't even know what that was. So no, uh, no, Ted, even Lemonheart back then. No, no, Ted and I, it, they'd stopped marketing it. So Ted mm. and I, we also, in addition to going to bars together, would go to liquor stores and look for. Um, now they call them Dusties. We didn't really have a word for it. it just, they were just dead stock, you know. Yeah. We would look for dead stock in liquor stores. We look for old bottles that maybe, maybe would be something we could use in our the ingredients for these cocktails we were researching. Ted was researching um, pre-prohibition classic Jerry Thomas type cocktail. Okay. So he was looking for much different things than I was. Mm. He was looking for like creme de violette, uh, forbidden fruit liqueur, things like that. I was looking for rums mostly. Just these weird rums that I couldn't even... Seeger's Bouquet was another rum that turned up on a lot of Trader Vic recipes. So I'd be looking for these. I couldn't find any of them. And then we went to this liquor store in Beverly Hills called Castle Liquor. And it was run by really, really crabby, this really crabby old couple. They were in their 90s. And, you know, we, we were just wandering through there and we went into the back where the rum section was because rum was, nobody was drinking rum back then. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, that was like in the, it's the, the dark ages. <laughs> yeah. And there they were, um, yellow label with a ship on it. Um, lemon heart, 151 wow. rum. Also lemon heart, Jamaican rum, which was delicious. The lemon heart, dark Jamaican rum. I haven't mm. seen that in like a 20 years mm. since. And I found, you know, Martinique rums. I found uh, all these things I was looking for. And now I could finally make some of these recipes that I had been wondering about for so long. And it that's how it dawned on me how important rum really was. Um, and we'll, we can get into that in a minute. And you guys can speak to that probably better than I can. But without oh, I these very specific types of rum blended together in the same right. glass, the drink didn't work. It didn't work. I mean, everybody used, back then, everybody either used Myers or Bacardi. That was it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those two rums were just, they just did not work in these drinks. These drinks were very specialized in terms of proof, in terms of label, all these things. And when you finally did get those rums, it was a revelation. You know, this, it was super important to have those rums. Um, and the thrill of discovery of finding those bottles and opening them up was great. I was also, there was also the, the, uh, the agony of defeat. <laughs> um, there was a liquor store in Santa Monica run by another crabby old guy. He had a bunch of old Jim Beam decanters to decorate his place. And oh, yeah. In years. And I looked at the rum section, and there was um, Appleton Punch Rum with a green label. Oh, and wow. it said 90 proof on it. <laughs> and it's great, a 90 proof rum, because I've, I've been looking for 97. This is better than Myers, which was 80. Right. So I bought a bottle. There were like seven bottles on the shelf. And I went home. And at the time, I, was ex- I had all these recipes to burn through to experiment with. I had no idea which ones were good or not. I couldn't tell just by looking at them. I have a better sense now after mm-hmm. all these years. But back then, I would have to actually make the recipe in order to figure out whether it was any good. Um, I hadn't acquired that skill set yet. Mm-hmm. I would pour. I would like, make a drink with this 90 proof Appleton punch rum and 
poured most of it down the drain. Oh, this drink sucks. Boom. This drink sucks. Boom. <laughs> okay. All right. All the bottles empty. I have to go buy another one. So I went and bought another one. This kept up until I bought the last bottle on the shelf. And as I was bringing it to the guy at the liquor store, I said, oh, can you reorder this? And he said, he just laughed at me. He said, <laughs> said son, they haven't made that rum in 20 years. Oh, I heartbreaking. Bought, I bought the last of it in California <laughs> and I poured most of it down the drain. Oh. And so that's the other part of that discovery story. And I'm sure you had perfected the recipe on the last bottle, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> never to see it again. Right, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> What, what did uh, you, when you ran out of those, I mean, were you just always on the hunt for those bottles or did you find yourself just having to resort to, well, I guess I'll just settle for, you know, I think you said Myers and Bacardi were like the only options. Yes, um, I did have to settle. I mean, gradually the category expanded a little bit in the aughts and there uh -huh. were more rooms being imported and we could get, you know, we could get to Agricoles and we can get um, various other um, expressions and brands that we couldn't. So it got easier as I went along. But one of the things that's very interesting to me anyway, is that I had to retool all these recipes to make them work with those rums. Like mm. if a drink called for 97 proof dark Jamaican and all I had to work with was 80, obviously I needed to use more of it. Right. Well, there's a problem with that. Um, the reason they specified an ounce of 97 proof and not an ounce and a quarter or a half of 80 proof is because the lower the proof, the more water in the bottle, mm -hmm. as you guys know, mm -hmm. and, right. the, and the more diluted the rum flavor. So the higher right. the proof, the more concentrated the rum flavor. And an 80 proof just doesn't cut it. Unfortunately, just to take a little side uh, yeah. bar take, right now. Take, take a sidebar. Um, my pet peeve now is, I'm large, I think they largely do it because of tax reasons. I mean, the lower the proof, the lower the taxes, the import right. taxes and mm -hmm. export taxes. And, Almost everything is a, is standard 40 ABV now, 80 proof, yeah. and it just doesn't. Give me one quick example, the daiquiri. Yeah. I never understood why anybody drank daiquiris. They just tasted like spiked limeade because they were right. made with an 80 proof Puerto Rican rum, mm -hmm. or for that matter, an 80 proof Cuban rum. It's like, what's the point? Um, when I finally got to try one with an old Cuban Bacardi at 89 proof, it was like, oh, now I get it. Everything clicks. <laughs> yeah. Light bulb. You know, yeah. I understand now. You know, it's just like, um, and finally, we live in an age when we can finally get rums like uh, Ed Hamilton's White Stash, which I believe is 86 or something like that. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. uh, and you've got uh, other, for a while, Bacardi would re-release re their 89 proof as a heritage, but that went away. Yeah. Um, but it makes all the difference in the world, you know, um, and... And especially in a three ingredient cocktail like the daiquiri, where every ingredient really counts. Right, you know, right, right. Pledge and make it work. You know, it's like, um, so I was, you know, for, let's take Myers, for example. I mean, Myers now is 80 proof, um, you know, decent Canadian rum, I guess. But um, it, back in the day when Fred Myers owned the company, it was a 97 proof, eight year barrel aged rum. And oh. I got to try some of it. Yeah. Um, and it was, you make a planter's punch with that, two ounces of that, as opposed to two ounces of an 80-proof dark you're making, and all of a sudden you understand why these drinks were as popular as they were. Right, right. They weren't all just this sort of like this meh kind of mishmash in a glass. Um, it should be noted that one of the biggest thrills I got in terms of rum discovery, perhaps the biggest one of all, was meeting a guy named Stephen Remsburg. Yes. Yeah. You guys know We're going to okay. ask about yes. him. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, for those who don't know uh, out there, he was... Uh, he's since passed, but he was a maritime attorney, lived in New Orleans, and he had the world's largest collection of vintage rums, public or private, in his house. And he was a 
true bon vivant in that if he had more than one bottle of something, even if it was from 1890, he yeah. would open it up and pour you a shot. That's where mm -hmm. I first tasted Cuban Bacardi at 89 proof. That's where I first tasted the Myers 97 proof. Um, that's where I tasted all these amazing expressions that really made me understand how much a drink depends on the right rum, you know, and the right, the right, not just the right proof, the right density, uh, the right aging, the right, I mean, everything else, all that stuff's very important and, um, you know, cannot be overemphasized in my opinion at this point. With that in mind, could I ask yeah. you also, which ones of those did you try that are now long extinct that you would want to resurrect today? Which one would you most want to go for and why? Well, Steve didn't have a Rain Nephew 17 year, you know, the famous rum that Appleton's just re-released. Um, I haven't tried it. Um, I wouldn't know how it compares to the old one. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, but I did try, he did have Rain Nephew 15. Okay. And that was just absolutely magnificent. I mean, um, I don't really have the vocabulary to talk about how it tasted, but you make a Mai Tai with that if you're willing to mix it with anything in the first place, you know, um, it's just spectacular. And that's what, what Trader Vic was serving in his restaurants until he ran out of it. Um, I'd like to see that come back. In, speaking of Infi Infierno yeah. and Golden Stag, I didn't know what they were um, until I went to Steve Remsburg's house and he had an, um, you know, he had bottles of them. And wow. he said, oh yeah, Golden Stag. Yeah, beach bum. That was a Jamaican rum. It's a gold Jamaican rum. And he pulled out the bottle, you know, in the Infierno. Yeah, it's 20 year old Cuban rum. I haven't made that in years. And it's like, holy shit, you know, it's just like um, the revelations just came thick and fast every time I went over there. I mean, he had bottles everywhere. His wife was just constantly upset about it. But uh, he had bottles <laughs> underneath the kitchen cabinets. He had bottles in the closets. Oh, he had bottles in the spare guest room. He had bottles yeah. every, you know. Um, yeah, I remember. I think you wrote that it looked. You thought it was wallpaper the first time you walked in. There, I right? did. This is pre-Katrina. This is like a week before Katrina, where yeah, it yeah. got destroyed, and unfortunately, it is no more. And I don't think there are any photographs of it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he walked me through the dining room, and then there was an antechamber between the dining room of the house and the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And in this sort of chamber, um, I thought he had floor-to-ceiling rum wallpaper around it. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool, Steve. Where'd you get that? I'd like some <laughs> yeah. of that. For my own place, and Who's he goes the artist. Yeah, and then and then I look closer, and it was he had designed special shelves that were just as wide as the base of a bottle of rum, <laughs> and these were all bottles of rum from floor to ceiling up on these shelves, and they were all, you know, all of us here today talking and listening would just like kill for you know just amazing stuff you know yeah he had Santa Cruz rum going back to like eighteen sixty two Civil War era rum you know it was just wow absolutely yeah. that's incredible. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard so many great things um, about him over the years. And unfortunately, never got the chance to meet him. But um, yeah, yeah would have, you would have loved him and he would have loved you guys. I mean, he, you know, in his professional uh, world, there was no everybody thought he was, you know, just an eccentric. <laughs> and uh, and it, fortunately, in the last 10, 15 years of his life, he got introduced to yeah. the TV crowd. I mean, he loved on the Beachcomber and Trader Vic. That's how he got into it the same uh -huh. way. Same way I did. Uh -huh. He got into it through mm -hmm. the drinks and then started wondering what was in them. Um, but he got to, he got to meet a lot of the people in the cocktail world and he really enjoyed entertaining, having people over. Yeah. Oh, one more rum that I tried at his house that knocked my socks off was a uh, Seeger's bouquet. Really? Seeger's hmm. bouquet from Finnerdad, which the Angostura company used to make. Wow. Hmm. And, uh, it was 
it has just this weird lemongrass kind of taste. It's yeah. just an exceptional flavor and character and mouthfeel and wow. uh, great entry, mid-palate. It was just perfect. And then I looked at the back label and it said, ways to serve Seeger's Bouquet. And it said, rum and Coke. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Yeah. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned the Ray and Nephew 17 year, which is being, we, we, just had a whole conversation about that on a previous episode because the rum community was in slight uproar um, about the release. And I was curious just to get your take on that. When you saw that it was being re-released, was your reaction like, I must have a bottle? Were you lining up to try to score one of the NFTs that gets you a bottle? Or you know, are, are you anticipating a bottle will just find its way to Latitude 29? No, that's the whole thing is out of my price range. Yeah. Um, that's uh, that, that's a bottle for one percenters, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah, I was intrigued to see that the proof was right. Mm. I mean, uh, was it is it was it one eighteen or ninety eight or something like that? One oh eight. One oh eight was the original Ray and nephew. See, there wasn't just I seventeen. Think I think it's it's forty nine ABV. I believe is the ABV. Forty nine. Yeah. So it's like a hundred proof. Then. Yep. It's not what the original was. I mean, the original was, I believe, at least fifty four. Okay. And there was an 18-year Ray and Nephew that I've seen uh, magazine ads for in the 40s that was 118 proof. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not really sure what the ABV of what Trader Vic and Don the Beachcomber were pouring when they were using Ray and Nephew 17. It could have been anywhere from, I know it wasn't, uh, it, it was, I know it was was not under hunger. I mean, it had mm-hmm. to be between 100 and 120 proof. So, I mean, I really can't say. I haven't tried it. I don't know. And, yeah. I, and if I did try it, I have no point of reference. I mean, there's no control group for right, it. Right, so right, right. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. know. But the thing is that Joy Spence is a very talented uh, master blender, and whatever she does should have her own imprint on it. I mean, I, I wouldn't expect someone with that kind of chops to just go and I wouldn't, I would never assign her, go and do what your right. predecessors did 60 right. years ago. I mean, this is going to have her stamp on it, you know, I'm sure. Right. Um, again, I'm speaking out of turn. I haven't tried it, but um, I'm sure it's great. But, you know, whatever it is, maybe maybe someday we'll all find out. Um, but yeah, like you said, out of our price range a bit, the the five hundred dollar right. bottles, if you can get them at retail. Um, one thing, you know, you uncovered all of these recipes, and now you know bars are using them. Other writers republish them in their own books. And on the one hand, I could see that being immensely gratifying. That like everyone's getting able is able to enjoy these now but on the other hand is is there any part of it that's a little frustrating like do you is, do you have a competitive side at all when it comes to that stuff no not competitive but i mean i'm i'm a very anti-competition when it comes to eating and drinking i, I hate the fact that americans have to turn everything into a contest like all right. these you're not you're chill. not you're not tuning into food network to to watch all well, the <laughs> eating and drinking these are things that are supposed to relax you i mean why right. turn that into a competition it's going to give you ulcers instead of making you happy you know it's like it's um, the american way <laughs> it, is, it is, but I, I think they should just stay hands off of um, you know booze and food as far as I'm concerned. One thing that does bother me as an author and someone who is a trained journalist who, you know, you're trained to show your work. If, if you interview somebody, you quote them and mm-hmm. name them. And I've, I've had plenty of situations where people did that and did not even quote me, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, they just took the information. And I've had a lot of situations where people are taking these recipes and not acknowledging where they got them from. Right. If somebody republishes the recipe and says where they got it from, I'm totally happy with that. But, and again, this is because there are no gatekeepers anymore. It's Mm -hmm. because nobody, you know, bloggers don't have editors. They don't have fact checkers. 
Yeah. Um, some of them don't even know what those are. Right. And, um, and hey, I was a blogger. I mean, I, I love the fact, again, this is a push me pull thing. If it wasn't for the internet, if it wasn't for blogging, yep. I wouldn't, we wouldn't be talking right now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I just, this, I, this podcast is because of the internet. It's, it's, yeah. it's a double-edged sword. Like you said, it, in, in some ways you get fantastic new voices from it who yeah. never would have made it past the gatekeepers, but exactly. then some you, very lose, talented you lose some of the benefits too. But, but that's, you know, the sour grapes on my part are um, very, very minor. I, it's the cocktail world has been, and the press has been very, very good to me. Um, a lot better than Hollywood ever was. <laughs> Would not trade this for that at, at any at any rate. And uh, and and I'm always glad when these recipes are getting out there. I mean, as as someone who just was frustrated drinking really terrible drinks in the, in the 80s and 90s, I'm just, I'm thrilled that they're out there. I'd much rather have them out there than not have them out there just because somebody's not crediting. Yeah. 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 Well, thankfully, ChatGPT is really good at sourcing things. So. <laughs> Oh man, don't even get me started. Yeah, I, I think I've read some articles about rum that were probably written by ChatGPT. <laughs> I bet. Honestly, ChatGPT might do a better job than some of the publications out there. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say amen. <laughs> yeah. You you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, Jeff, but, but the rum selection is much wider and more diverse today than it has been in the past. And then when when you first got into Tiki, are, are there any particular rums or styles of rum that maybe they're not as featured in classic tiki cocktails but that you've really fallen in love with anyway well i'm a i'm an old dog and these there are a lot of new rums out there that um i'm just there's so many new i mean i go to rum festivals all over the world and yeah i can't keep up i just it's, yeah. it's the it's opposite lot, yeah. problem you know and i'd rather have this problem than the problem of not being able to get anything but I just can't keep up, man. I mean, there's amazing stuff out there. Now. Amazing stuff coming out of Mexico now. You yeah, know, we our our last episode was literally just with um, Elisandro from Daca Bend. Um, yeah, he's doing some really cool stuff. Yeah, amazing stuff coming out of Mexico. Um, Ian Burrell has a great rum that comes from Madagascar, I think. The uh, Mauritius, yeah, yeah. Mauritius, yeah, Mauritius. And Barbados, yeah, right, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Just uh, all. I mean, I'm waiting to see what happens with India. Uh, I mean, I know they've got yeah. old milk, but I, I think this is going to be some pretty good stuff coming out of there soon. They have a huge rum scene there, so certainly yeah. it seems like that's burgeoning and that, you know, more rums will come out of that that are uh, yeah. high quality. Yeah, yeah I'm desperate, is, uh, yeah. desperate to try more of the Amrut stuff from over there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, so it's a worldwide phenomenon now. It, it, uh, Australia is fascinating. Australia, yeah. you have a brand called Inner Circle, mm -hmm. which was amazing. Like really woody, um, yes. hard, demerara-tasting rums. I don't think they make them anymore, but... I think there's a, a lot of potential down there to to do some good stuff, not just Bundaberg anymore, you know? Yeah, agree. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kicking myself, John. I hadn't told you this, but um, Steve McGarry was in Nashville last night with mm -hmm. a bunch of other Australian rum distillers, and we were trying to meet up, but our paths just couldn't cross. And I feel oh, like no. I squandered a huge opportunity because how often am I going to be around someone from Australia? So um, anyway, yeah, John and I are big fans of Australian rum, and, and Steve was previously a distiller at Ben Lee, um, which yeah. I believe made Inner Circle, and right. is now okay. off doing his own new big operation. So there's all kinds of stuff popping up. I, I see a different new, exciting Australian rum all the time, and so much over there is done with um, cane juice. You know, they're growing sugar cane, so it's a uh, yeah, it's an amazing world out there. Yeah, oh, Hawaiian rums too. 
Yes, uh, yeah. Cool, I think Kuliana is doing ama- some amazing work. Yeah, some mm-hmm. cool blends. I was over, at, mm-hmm. I was over at their um, sugarcane fields and their distillery and saw them in action. It's like these guys are these guys going to be big. You know, this is really good stuff. At least yeah. they should be big. I mean, I, you know, once sugarcane rums takes off, exactly. <laughs> we're yeah, yeah. We're we're <laughs> we're trying to do our part. Yeah. So Will showed that uh, bottle of the Hamilton Zombie Blend uh, when we started, and we definitely it's also have what's some, um, it's what's in uh, here as well. Excellent. Not just a cocktail rum. It is sippables. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to know a little bit more about that. I know you chronicled what we believe to be Don Beach's original zombie blend back in your book, Sip and Safari. And yeah. then you took like it was two years of experimenting to arrive at your own blend of rums. I wanted to ask, and I don't know if you're allowed to say this, how close is that to Don's original blend? Well, it's not as close as you might think. I mean, the irony of all this was that um, Ed and I got together and I pitched him the idea. He said, do you want to do um, a Jeff Berry label of my blend, you know, Jeff Berry blend or a Latitude 29 blend? And I thought, well, you know, I know people do that, but it just seems kind of egotistical. And it's just, yeah. you know, what's the, what's the consumer, what does the consumer get out of that? You know, and, and I thought back to when Trader Vic was blending his own Mai Tai rum, mm-hmm. um, and he also blended a Navy Grog rum, and it was, they all came through the Julius Wiley um, long-defunct distribution network. But but the thing is, Vic had an amazing palate, and he made really, really, really good uh, blended rums. I mean, mm. the Mai Tai rum he did was absolutely delicious. I mean, I used to just drink it on ice. And the Navy Grog rum he did was too. And, and what those two things did was they made it good... It wasn't only a good thing to drink, but it really was a plus for consumers. For example, with the Navy Grog, if I wanted to make one without the Navy Grog blend, I'd have to go to God knows how many liquor stores before I found a Demerara. <laughs> mm. uh, depending on where I live, you know, um, it's not that hard here, but it's hard in a lot of places, especially yeah. uh, control states. You know, mm-hmm. where you, they have they have government-run stores that don't have anything in them. So I'd have to track down some Demerara. I'd have to track down a dark Jamaican. I'd have to track down a oh, white Puerto Rican. not a problem, but it's probably the only one that isn't. Uh-huh. And I could be, I could spend three days doing that before I could make my drink. And what Vic did, which I thought was genius, was he put it all in one bottle. And all you have to do is just buy that one bottle and then pour out three, pour three ounces of it out instead of one ounce of three different bottles. Mm-hmm. And also, he, you make a consistent drink every time that way. Like right. you're not always going to get the same brand that you like in order to make the drink. I mean, you're going to have to, you, you might have to settle for a lesser, especially when it comes to the supply chain problems we're having now post COVID. For sure, we can't get anything. You know, I'm down here anyway. We're having a hell of a time getting even the most basic cocktail yeah. product. So you're going to have to try and figure out an alternate way to do it. Well, this way, Vic did what I call he covered the three C's: um, consistency. You're going to get the same tasting drink every time. You're not going to have to substitute anything. And uh, cost, you're only buying one bottle instead of three bottles, um, of which all have various price tags on them. Mm-hmm. And convenience, you're just, you've are just you got it all in one bottle and you just pour it out. Um, so those three th- C's were kind of what I thought of when I was talking to Ed and I pitched him the idea of, well, let's, uh, Vic did an AB Grog in a my turn, let's do a zombie run. Because getting 151 Demerara Thanks to Ed, we can get it in most markets uh-huh. now, wherever he's distribu- distributed. You know, the zombie is a very popular thing. It's in all these tiki bars. Um, and having everything in one bottle would be great for consumers. And it would also be great for professionals behind a bar. Yeah. Because if you have a bar in Washington State or in where you can't get 
General 151 probably. And if you have a bar in um, a state, and there are quite a few states that have this law where you cannot marry bottles. So if, if, you're making a, if you're making a zombie in certain states, it's against the law for you to take three rums and pre-mix them into your well rum with what's for a zombie so you I have no idea but it's not surprising that i think about it yeah. yeah yeah so this way legally you can just do a one touch you know one pour instead of having to reach for three have three bottles in the well and and all that right and uh it just seemed to make sense the only problem was how do we do it and we were i was in the really fortunate position knowing ed because ed is the only importer i know who imports demerara rum jamaican rum and also like a white Spanish style rum. In this mm. case, we used rums from Trinidad or Dominican Republic because he doesn't have a Puerto Rican, but it's the same mm -hmm. uh, profile. Style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, is, did we just take the proportions and the kind of rums that Don used and put them in one bottle? No, not at all. I think we're using five different expressions. Oh, wow. Um, and mm. and uh, in order to get the same flavor we had to do a lot of messing around. And for me, that was mostly what I did. And Ed was sending me raw distillate, like mm -hmm. undiluted raw, you know, barrel proof stuff from uh, Worthy Park and from other places that he was sourcing. And some of these things would be 160, 170 proof. And I would be mixing the three of them. And I could only try like two or three little <laughs> samples the night before I found myself face down on the kitchen floor. That's why it took two years. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> um, and, the, and the idea also was we want to do a high proof concentrated rum. The less water in the bottle, the more concentrated rum flavor, the less rum you have to use in the drink. Right. So instead of using four ounces of rum, four ounces of liquid volume in a zombie the way Don did, we only are version only calls for two ounces mm -hmm. because the flavor and the and the heat are all there and you're sa you're saving money yeah um That's the a huge difference. Were, you, yeah. were you worried about that like when you thought of the concept of oh we could just make a two ounce zombie like did you have faith right away that that could work or were you like ah like i don't know if it's going to be the you know on um, equal footing no, I didn't have faith. It was just, it was a matter of trial and error and, and finally realizing that it was within our grasp. Yeah. Um, it's a good question. Also, the, the question of proof. I think we ended up on 119. Uh, it just felt right. I mm. mean, uh, and, and Ed sent me a proof calculator so I could make, I could mathematically figure out if I'm using this, that, the other thing, what I'm going to end up with proof wise. So that mm -hmm. was pretty cool. My concern was that there are so many, cocktail geeks, and I'm one of them, and it's not disparaging, <laughs> out there now who are so hardcore that they're going to say, well, how, if this is a zombie rum, why aren't we using four ounces? Right. This is bullshit. Yeah. This is bullshit, man. We can't use, <laughs> and you can't just plug this rum into the classic 1937 recipe. You can't. Right. Damn gatekeepers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, well, the gatekeepers on the other foot now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they turn the tables. Yeah, so I thought that I was going to get a lot of flack about that, but it ended up not being a problem. You know, everybody was cool with it. I mean, so, I feel like people, I feel like you've earned the benefit of the doubt a little bit, you know? <laughs> like, well, thank you. <laughs> if anyone's going to do it. Um, is there, I, I was looking at the, the zombie recipe, um, and cor correct me if I'm wrong, because you would know, and there's a good chance I'm wrong, but is this kind of a hybrid recipe of some of John's or is it, because I think this one has grapefruit juice, but I don't know if the 1934 had grapefruit or not. It did, but it was in something called Don's mix. I mean, here's oh, okay. an example right. of how 
I had to rejigger it a little. Yeah. And I also rejiggered it just for ease. Like I can't, there's not room on a bottle to explain Don's mix. And say, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so separating them made more sense. See footnotes, scan this QR yeah. code to find out what Don's mix is. And yeah. magnifying glass. <laughs> exactly. It was a hell of a, we had a hell of a time getting all that stuff on the label. Um, so what this is, is um, I have zombie recipes from th now, at this, at this late date. Um, I have one, I have the original from 37. I have another one from 44 that Mariano Liquidine had when he was the head bartender in Chicago. Hmm. I have another one from 1970 from um, the guy from Palm Springs, uh, Hank, Hank Riddle, and uh, another couple. And I was able to look at them and go, oh, wait a minute. Okay, so they, over the years, it was kind of fascinating. Don's recipes changed a lot over the years. He was mm -hmm. a tinkerer. He didn't stop tinkering. And one of the things he was tinkering with was how do I make these incredibly complicated drinks in a short enough amount of time so that people don't complain right and higher and in higher volumes because each place that he would go to as he's his, his career progressed had more seats and it had to serve more drinks so it's interesting when you look at the original don beach zombie the 37 one you see all these jagged different measurements that the poor bartender had to jig around it's like you you have a half an ounce of don's mix well that was prepped but that was two parts grapefruit to one part cinnamon syrup or vice versa. I don't remember. You had um, dashes or eighth of a teaspoon of a whole bunch of different things like falernum and et cetera, et cetera. A teaspoon of falernum, I think it was. Mm -hmm. You had, uh, you know, eight drops grenadine. And then you had an ounce of 151, one and a half ounces of gold Puerto Rican, one and a half ounces of dark Jamaican. And the whole thing is just like this very jagged thing where you have to have all these different measuring devices. Right. Yeah. Um, you look at his recipe that he did for the Aku Aku restaurant in Las Vegas, which was in the Stardust Casino, huge high volume, I mean, serving hundreds of drinks a night. Everything is three-quarter ounce, three-quarter ounce, three-quarter ounce, three-quarter ounce, three-quarter ounce. <laughs> nice the and grapefruit simple. and the cinnamon would have been separated into two three-quarter ounce, the falernum three-quarter ounce, boom, 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 boom. And then he would have dashes of this, that, or the other thing. Um, and the rums, too. The rums were all three. The whole thing is just mm. nothing but three-quarter ounce. And that's actually the template we used at uh, latitude oh, before the zombie okay. run because it was just so easy you know and the drink still tastes great i guess there's some difference in flavor if you go to the trouble of making the 37 you'll be happier but it's still a good drink you know but that was his genius you know he was able to do that and streamline things so to get back to your original question of the recipe on the uh, the hamilton beachfront bottle he was closer to what mariano did in chicago when he was the head bartender at donna and he was doing the same thing Okay. Um, he was he broke everything out: half ounce grapefruit, half ounce cinnamon, half ounce lime, blah blah blah. No, three quarter lime actually. But mostly, all you needed was that half ounce sugar and then an ounce, you know, for for the rums, which he did at one ounce each, and rebalanced it and all that. So so that was kind of the inspiration for this recipe. Well, okay, we can do this, and it's going to work with two ounces of this high proof mm. rum. Well, yeah. I, I appreciate the convenience because if I am at home and I see a recipe and it has like one eighth teaspoon or one quarter teaspoon, I'm just, I'm, I'm moving on. Next. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm, not, yeah. I'm not trying to pour a full bottle into like a little tiny teaspoon, it's, you know. Yeah. Um, to be honest with you guys, I don't really make cocktails at home anymore. I'm just going to pour out some, uh, you know, Dorley's 12 here on ice. Nice. Yeah. That's that's tough to beat. That's tough to beat. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, I was it's, just it's... sipping on that myself. Yeah, <laughs> See? there you go. Great minds think alike, and so do um, ours. Yeah. I mean, especially when you have a whole 
professionalized playground, you know. Um, I get to have at, fun at work. As yeah. your office. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And other people are making them for me, which is awesome. Even so I can't recommend that highly enough. Even better. Absolutely. That is definitely my key to enjoying cocktails for sure. <laughs> um, that's my, my pro tip. Um, is Will and I fight a lot about this, about bottle design and labels and stuff like that. But this is one we actually agree on. And I just had to know whose idea was it to zombify your likeness on the label for this zombie blend? Oh, that was mine via Cass McClure. Uh, Cass McClure, uh, he's living in Georgia now, but he was a, a tiki freak. And he also worked in Hollywood as a makeup guy. Ah. And uh, for Sippin' Safari, for the zombie chapter, we, he made me up to look like a zombie. He, he did, did a life photo shoot. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did like a life mask of my head, and it was all in latex, and I had the hands and everything. And what we did was, Mrs. Baum and Ian Kay, she took that photo, and then she just sort of like, you know, made it more of an illustration kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that was the zombie head. So it was sort of a combination of factors. It was it was uh, Cass's original genius, and then I just took that and gave it to Ian, and she made it work. And there it is. I'm it's, glad you noted the label. I really like that label. Yeah, it's 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 perfect. I, I kind of wish we had spent as, as much time on the Navy Grog label as we mm -hmm. did on that. The Navy Grog yeah, label is a little more generic, you know, but we had to too late. You can always out. you can always revise. Exactly. I, I have you to in ask. a Navy suit, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> you a little hat and everything. Um, yeah, yeah. One of those uh, tri tri corners. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 When um when you had all the zombie makeup on the the latex and everything for that photo shoot, did you have any fun with it afterwards? Like, did you go out in public and you know? <laughs> I had a plan. <laughs> I had a plan. Okay, so it took two hours to put I was on. Gonna say you have to get your money's worth of like <laughs> sitting there for that long, right? Exactly, and it it took almost as long to take off. And in the meantime, I was going to go from the house of the guys we shot the did the shoot at. Um, I was going to drive to the local supermarket and then just take a cart <laughs> and just walk around with the zombie makeup. And I was foiled because the way the eyes were, um, he had like eye strips. I could only see my feet. I oh, only, no. Uh, no. I couldn't really see anything. There's no visibility. So I couldn't drive and I, I couldn't. I certainly couldn't walk through a supermarket. That probably made you more zombie-like, though, because you might have stumble around, yeah. right? You would have yeah, just had there. to pay for all the broken stuff in the store, but that's worth <laughs> it. Was it. It's, it's cool, sir. Don't worry about it. We'll take it. We'll clean it up. <laughs> I'm just imagining you pushing a cart through the grocery store, like just full of uh, raw meat yeah. and stuff like that. You know what a zombie would probably pick uh, up? Yeah, I, I, it was what a missed opportunity. But on the other hand, I didn't get shot in the head by um, a zombie yeah. fan. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That helps. Gotta kill it. Gotta shoot him in the head. Otherwise, they don't die. <laughs> um, I do know. It, it seemed like the the zombie. Like if you had a white whale, it would have been the zombie. Um, mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. But oh, um, no, that was, that was, yeah. now that you've successfully pieced it together, are there, and, and many, many others, which people can read about in your books, are there any other recipes you're still chasing, ones that you haven't managed to crack the code on yet? Tons. Um, oh, wow, tons. So many recipes. I mean, because mm. I collect menus. I collect vintage cocktail menus, uh -huh. and there are drinks on them from places all over the country back in the day, and I want to know what was in them. One of them, the, the Don the Beachcomber drink that I really want to know is called the Cannibal Grog. Okay. It's something he served in uh, his place in Waikiki. And it's like, I love that name so much. I just want to know what was in it. Right, right. And uh, there was Harry Yee, also in Hawaii at the Hawaiian Village. Uh, he's the guy who invented the Blue Hawaii and um, a bunch of other stuff. But he had a drink called the Tub of Oak, which they served in, um, it's really hard to describe. You can, see that, you can see it online if you Google the menu. But it was like, uh, you put a, a three pronged, bamboo tub 
and it has really long legs that went up to here. So if you're sitting here, the legs go up to here, and then there's this tub, and then it's full of this drink called oh, the wow. Tub of Oculiao. I'd love to know what's in that. There's another drink from the Islander in Beverly Hills called the Husband Killer. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, I want to know what was in a Husband Killer. <laughs> so, but that's just three. There's so many more. <laughs> so I feel like so much is... um. So, so names can be so evocative sometimes. Um, it's interesting. We we had Shannon Mustafer on uh, several months ago, and I was asking her about her creative process for making drinks. And what do you start with? Is it an ingredient or whatever? And she said the name, and I was so surprised. I just didn't expect that, but I thought it was so cool. Like I thought that's the vision I had in my head of how people would do it, but no one would actually do that because it seems you know too out there. But, um, the, um, the older I get, and I'm getting pretty old, um, I'm convinced <laughs> that the reason why a lot of famous drinks are famous is not necessarily because they were wonderful flavors, but because they had good names. Um, oh, yeah. Case in point is the Suffering Bastard. Yeah. yeah. That, I think that drink is famous because of that name. You know, And um, I think the Mai Tai, there's something really exotic and flowery and it rolls off the tongue. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's the reason that drink was his most famous drink. Mm -hmm. It just had a great name. Zombie, can't beat that name, you know. Um, so many others. I, I, I'm really, really convinced. If you got a good name, you you've got sales. Yeah. If if the well, zombie Shannon's had been like, like the, the the ghost or something, it'd be nowhere near the reputation it has today. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask a little bit more about Latitude Twenty Nine also, and and sure. you as a, a restaurant owner, how much of your time do you commit to managing that and how much of that is spent in ma making sure it matches your vision of what you wanted it to be? Uh, basically, the latter is, thankfully, because um, Anine, Mrs. Baum, she's the one who really had all the restaurant and bar experience, uh, yeah. a lifetime of it, and she's the one who's okay. made that place work, and she manages it with our manager, Jeff Schwartz, and does an amazing job. And basically, I'm just the guy in the hat, you know, just wandering around, <laughs> you know, taking pictures of the people. But I, oh, the drinks are my, obviously my mm -hmm. daily. Mm -hmm. So that's um, I pay a lot of attention to the drink menu and to the rum selection. And but I'm very very fortunate in that I get I think I get to enjoy the place a lot more than than my wife does. <laughs> <Because Yeah. laughs> she's got to keep it going, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was a very very to go a little deeper into this. Um, I was and still am pretty much an amateur. You know, I, I was never a professional bartender and I never until, you know, until this happened, I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd be running a bar, co-owning a bar, I guess is a more specific way of saying, you know, mm -hmm, I'm not running mm -hmm. it. But um, when it, when it was going to be a reality, it was the steepest learning curve I've ever had. And the reason is that um, when I was writing the books and, and doing recipes for the books and testing them out to see if they work. Um, if, if it took me a half an hour to make the drink, no big deal. You know, I was just doing it in, <laughs> yeah. in, home, in my kitchen, you know. And if I wanted to use a, an $80 bottle of rum, assuming I could afford one, that's no big deal either, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I never had to think about anything other than making the best possible drink. When it came to actually opening a place and all of my insight into what to do with the menu came from being a customer mm -hmm. on the other side of the bar and seeing what people did right and seeing what I thought maybe people did wrong. And one of the big problems with tiki bars is it takes too long for people to make the drinks because they're so complicated. And the other problem is that the drinks, after a while, you can't really tell. If you've got 30 drinks on the menu, they all start to taste the same, unless right. you've really thought very long and hard about different yeah. flavors. So 
planning the menu was kind of a, an intellectual exercise, really. I mean, I had to pick out of 20 drinks that had a passion fruit vibe, I had to pick the one that I thought was the best one because there could only be one passion fruit forward drink right. um, because I didn't want people saying all these drinks taste the same, you know, uh, one Falernum forward drink, one this forward drink, one that forward drink. Um, so that was an interesting exercise. And then came specking out the recipes. I could not just take a recipe from the book and put it on the menu because it didn't follow the three-dimensional chess that I had to play now. I was only playing one-dimensional chess, which is best possible drink. Now I had to think, what's the best possible drink? Second level of that three-dimensional chess is, what's the best possible drink in the least amount of time mm -hmm. that I can make in the least amount of time? You have to do operational. You have to figure out um, how to make that work. Okay, third level. So how to make the best possible drink in the least amount of time for the least amount of money. Yeah. Because you have to stay in business, but always never sacrificing any of the other two things. You're not sacrificing the best possible drink, but you are placing limits on yourself as far as how what the what the pour cost is going to be. Which means I'm not going to be using um, Clement Ors Dodge in the Mai Tai, assuming I could get it now. Yeah, because <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I you know because nobody could afford to drink it, and um, right. I have to settle for another one. And you have to think about. I, uh, one of the rules I gave myself was like no single use ingredients. Like there had to be at least two drinks on the menu that used the ingredient. Otherwise, you're just making it, uh, expending the labor, the cost, and everything to make it for one drink, which maybe nobody's going to order. Yeah, so, yeah, you're really dependent. Uh, yeah. Um, the other thing which was interesting, I, I, I could go on about that for hours. About you know, but I'll, but um, let's just talk about the rums. One of the things I found as a customer going to some of the best rum bars. In the, in the world, I was fortunate to go to a lot of cocktail because of, you know, for speaking engagements and things mm -hmm. like that. Classes, I would go to a lot of cocktail festivals in a lot of like key cocktail cities. And as a consumer, sometimes I'd be handed, and tiki bars mostly, I'd be handed a list of 400 rums that I could choose from. And I thought to myself, okay, you've got bragging rights because you've got 400 rums, but have you tried them all? <laughs> you know, I mean, are they good? You know, uh, you're the rum expert. You should be curating your list for me. I was so going to say, this is where we need some curation again, right? A exactly. little gatekeeping. So, Tell me which ones to get. Right. Mm. So I figure it's my job. A, a we couldn't, uh, we don't have the space for 400 rums. So there's that. But the second thing is, I just think it's lazy. I mean, there aren't 400 good rums on the U.S. market at this point who are, that are on an equal level. I mean, they're good, but they're not great. Some of them are great, but they're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway... My job was, okay, uh, agricole rum. Let me take the best aged agricole available to me and put that on there as a representative of that category. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the best blonde. And the Jamaican rum, let me take the best gold and the best dark uh, in that category as a sipper. You know, there were no well rums listed in that sipping list. That's for mm. people who are going to drink straight rum, maybe with ice in it. And I, I want to give them the best possible expression of that category. Yeah. So it went all the way down the line, you know, Barbados, um, you know, uh, Guyana, uh, other countries. Uh, and I, we ended up having about, you know, 30 rums on the list. And okay. even that I felt was too much. But there were cases when I just couldn't stop at one rum. I mean, for example, a Clement 10 year, I think is a magnificent rum. Mm. And I also had to have a Nissan Elevé Subois in there, which I think is also a good. So I had more can't than leave one. Out the, right. Can't leave out the Nissan. Yeah. 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 So I had, so. 
I had more than one um, aged agricole on there, and I did the same thing in other because I, I have my favorite styles of rum, so sure. um, I lean more heavily on those maybe than than on others. And uh, that was great, and we printed up a menu, and it was really cool, and people loved it. And then I learned a very valuable lesson: don't print a menu and laminate it and go to all that expense <laughs> because you're gonna lose a lot of these brands. <laughs> you know, yeah. I didn't realize how tenuous the distribution system is, at least down here in New Orleans. Yeah. As soon as I put a rub on the list, I couldn't get it anymore. You know, and um, and especially after the pandemic with the supply chain problems we're having now, is, there's there's we don't have a printed list anymore. We just mm. have things behind the back bar. Right. You know, we'll look at we just can't do it because we never know week from week to week whether we're gonna be able to replace something once it runs out. Mm. On the other hand, that makes it kind of fun making the best of a bad situation and that we're constantly trying new runs to keep that shelf filled. And right, so, right. And if you, you if you have an agonizing decision, you know, you can always maybe switch to the other one, you know, when you yes, uh, when you have to refresh things in a, in another month. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So and you can keep coming back over time and maybe an ever evolving rum list. Yeah. 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 Yes, exactly. It's a living, breathing organism at this point. Right. Exactly. It's alive. <laughs> So speaking of your rum men menu there, we, we often try things on the podcast and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't work, but we're going to try this and see, see if it works out for us. Uh, and we mentioned a little bit earlier about your prowess as a writer and even your history as a writer prior to doing things in Tiki. We both found it cool and awesome to learn that you actually wrote the famous tagline from the Home Alone movie, a family comedy without the family. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And so I thought it, maybe it might be fun to brush off that creative impulse with us here and see if we could write some taglines for some of the famous tiki cocktails available at Latitude 29. <laughs> so we'll see how well this goes and how quickly, but I have a couple of prompts here, and uh, let's see if we can come up with anything. So the first one I have here is, of course, the zombie. So we have to think of a tagline for the zombie here. I I'll, I'll start you off. Okay. It's, it's to die for. That's <laughs> not bad. I, I can't I feel like that. that's probably one to the next one. That, that's that's got to be. We could that, do. That's got to be on one of your old menus that you have somewhere, Jeff. I feel like someone used that before. It's to die yeah, for. I, I can't Juan, have come up with that the first yeah. time. Yeah. Juan Beach was a little more poetic. He went off. He went a little bit less on the nose. He called it a mender of broken dreams. Which oh, I thought yeah. was all right. That is much more poetic. <laughs> um, all right. What about the Navy Grog? Ah. Um, It'll have you three sheets to the wind, even if there's no wind. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's pretty good. I, I went with a similar vibe, actually. I was thinking all the fun of the Navy, Navy without actually having to enlist. <laughs> that too. Or alternate version, all the fun of the Navy without the flogging. Ah, I love it. There we <laughs> See, go. See, we're getting somewhere now. We're getting somewhere now. <laughs> all right. You mentioned the suffering bastard. So let's go suffering bastard. Is there anything that comes to mind there? Uh, the only thought Jeff, I had Jeff didn't with this, realize he was going to come on here and get homework assignments. <laughs> <laughs> the only thought I had with it a little bit like 10 minutes ago was that it reminds me of Fat Bastard from the movie from Austin Powers. Oh, so yeah. Say, get in my belly. <laughs> well, <laughs> and it works. Be, it does work, actually. Get, that actually does work. Yeah. <laughs> You might experiment with that and just see if Suffering Bastard uh, sales skyrocket. I don't know if you have it on the menu currently, but that might. Oh yeah, be, we do. That um, might be the missing link. Is is we, the get, get in my it, belly line on the, <laughs> on the menu? We, we call it um, 
we're a bit more historical. We call it the drink that won the Battle of El Alamein, um, which it did do. I don't know if you guys know that story or not. I don't. Um, the guy who invented it, Joe Shalom, the drink was originally called the Suffering Bar Steward. But the, all the English officers from the uh, Montgomery's Eighth Army in World War II, they made his, they made Joe Shalom's bar in Cairo, uh, the long bar at the Shepherd's Hotel, sort of their like um, officers club. Right, and right. Um, it's coming uh, back to me now from potions. <laughs> right. And during the war, when Rommel had cut off the supply lines to Cairo, he, uh, Joe was getting inferior booze. I mean, he couldn't get any good stuff anymore. So the uh, officers are complaining about bad headaches. So he came up with a suffering bastard, which they, you know, in their uh, accents called it the suffering bastard, came up with that drink as a hangover cure. Yeah. So they were called away to the Battle of El Alamein after a long night of drinking at his bar, and they were all hungover, and they had to fight the Nazis in the desert. And Joe got an urgent telegram from the front saying, we need eight gallons of your suffering bastard right away. So he, he whipped him up, he put him in thermoses. He put them in taxi cabs and drove as far up to the front as they could. And the, apparently the officers got their suffering bastards and the British won the battle. That's amazing. And um, the, uh, this became viral uh, in the 1940s because it was not only sort of an officer's club, his bar, but it was also a press club for all the foreign correspondents recovering the war. And mm. they seized on that story and just like made hay How out of it. How could you not? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were talking about Indiana Jones earlier. And obviously, you know, the Nazis play a prominent role in those movies as villains. I feel like maybe in the new one, they can make some sort of suffering bastard connection or something. There's, there's probably an opportunity in there somewhere. It's probably in the Dial a, of Destiny. If there was <laughs> ever a drink that... Belonged in that movie, that movie series is the suffering bastard. Cairo, yeah. World War II, I mean, you name it. Yeah. They'd only find a way to put it in there if it were like product placement for Pepsi or something, though. <laughs> so, right. No one makes money off the suffering bastard except for you know tiki bars, maybe. But there you um, go. on the note of drinks, a few you know kind of random questions I had that I wanted to get to before we wrap up here in a few minutes. Um, what is the last drink you had that really you know delighted you in an unexpected way? Well, this is gonna. I'm not dodging this question. This really is true. Um, no, no, no. It's sure, sure, a good, good way to preface an answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not ducking the question. What happened to me was um, the Tiki Tea used to be my local Tiki Bar in East Valley, yeah. and of course, you know their their signature drink, their most famous for Ray's Mistake, which I've never been able to parse. I've never been able to figure that drink out. Yeah. They're all secret, you know. And it was my favorite drink there, and I drank it all the time. But I. I left LA in 2007 and uh, I hadn't been to the Tiki Tea in, God, no, maybe 10 years. It was back this November, this last November. And of course, I ordered a raised mistake. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that drink surprised me the way it did when I first tasted it because I had my taste, my sense memory had gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. All I remembered was that I liked it. I didn't remember why. And uh, once again, that mysterious, elusive flavor came back to me. And it's like, and that really, out of all, all the drinks that I've had all around the country and Europe and South America in the last few years, that's, that's still, that's, that still surprises me. That's a great answer to the question. And I won't give you any grief for it because okay. I, I think, no, I think that's a, a relatable experience, um, not just in food, but I mean, sometimes you'll hear, I'll hear, um, you know, an old song I used to like when I was... Uh, a much younger man mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll realize I haven't heard this in probably 15 years and it, it you know you bring all these new things to it I don't know it, it, right. it changes well, you have the a, way you experience it you have more perspective you have uh -huh. more life experience and these things 
um, you bring that to bear on it. I mean, because the last time I had one, none of this, I had, didn't have any of this second act of, you know, opening a bar and being ferried around to speak at conventions and stuff. And all that happened after my last raise mistake. Mm -hmm. So coming back to it, having been around a little bit, you have a new appreciation for it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, we have one more special segment at the end. Before we get to that, I want to ask one last question, which is if there are distillers out there listening to this podcast thinking, boy, I'd really like to get on Jeff's 30 rum, you know, very exclusive pared down rum menu at Latitude 29. What can <laughs> rum makers do to stand out and get the attention of bar owners, bartenders to end up getting into great places like Latitude 29 where more people will get to experience their creations? That's a that's a great question. And um, I've been asked that before by distillers. I think we were both at. Um, uh-huh. I remember you, uh, you, you talked up. about this at the ADI Rum Summit in yeah. New Orleans, and, and, and I wanted I think, to revisit um, it. Yeah, I don't remember what I said at the time, but um, I've thought about it since then. And I think, and I've looked at our list and I've had more inquiries. And I think regionality. I think regionality is very mm. important. Like, there was a you know, there was a guy there at that at the uh, convention we were at mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, who was making rums from Texas, and he said, yeah. "Well, how do I how do I publicize it? Texas rum? You pu you publicize it as being a rum from Texas? Everyone loves you know? Texas. <laughs> Everything's bigger. Well, it's great. Yeah, make bigger bottles. <laughs> but <laughs> but how many other Texas rums are going to be on somebody's some bar's rum list? That's going to stand out. Mm -hmm. You know." Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, okay, that's going to be different from um, a Jamaican rum. It's going to be different from even a rum from Louisiana. There's right. Louisiana rums out there. That's going to stand out. Yeah. Um, Karen Hoskins does the same thing with mm -hmm. her rum from Colorado. Yeah. Um, and I, I forget mountain. She calls it mountain rum or something. Yeah, it's, like, it's like Colorado mountain rum. I think yeah, it's on it's the a label, something name. like that. Yeah. And the, the guys from Texas had a catchy name too. Something about Picos. Or something. I don't remember exactly mm -hmm. what it was, but it was, you know, it was, it was all you need is at this point is to exploit your regionality. Now, if you're from a region that already has rums coming out of it and you want to get on our list, I'd say do not do anything at 40 ABV. Go high. <laughs> yes. Thank you. You're preaching, Jeff, right now. John Amen and I always talk. We talked about we, we talked about 40 ABV with cocktails earlier, but I mean, 80 proof rums, they don't guarantee ruin the neat drinking experience, but it's, I've never had an 80 proof rum neat that wasn't better at even slightly higher proof. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Cause you're, you're just drinking extra water in it. Uh, I agree with hundred percent and it must be said again. I think we already touched on this earlier that back in the day you would be hard pressed to find a 40 ABV rum. Yeah. You know, almost every region was making higher proof rums. You know, 97 was the norm. 89, 97 was the norm for British uh, islands, and 89 was the norm for uh, Spanish colonies. I mean, now they're all independent nations, thank thankfully, and but they still have those rum traditions. Mm -hmm. And it made a difference. It makes a difference. I'm afraid we're going to wake up in a world 40 years from now. We're all going to be drinking 35% uh, ABV rum. They're right? just going to keep squeezing well, the margins, right? It's, it's oh. very interesting because I, I was looking at some Philippines rums and the export, the brand that I'm, that I'm referring to, they export their rums at 40 ABV, but they have a lot of 35 proof yeah. stuff yeah. that's sold domestically. Right. Yeah, so Dominican Republic is the same way. I've seen that. Yep. Well, really, I didn't know that. Yep. yep. All right, Jeff, I know we got to get you out of here. Um, 
we have one final segment and luckily it is a quick segment. It's called the rapid fire segment. And the question should be mostly easier to answer than coming up with uh, taglines on the spot for <laughs> menu items. But agreed. this is a, a segment that my co-host John Gullah specializes in. Uh, he cooks this up every time. I actually, John wasn't able to do our previous interview and I had to do this myself and it was so fucking hard. Um, so I am really <laughs> glad that John is back to do this because he comes up with a good question. So John, do you do you want to give any any more instructions for, for Jeff before, uh, uh, before we jump into this? Only instruction is as fast as you can make it, and there are no wrong answers. So however you want to take it, feel free to take it. All right, sir. All right, we put um, a, a very generous 60 seconds on the clock and uh, see how many we can get through in that 60-second period. So, yeah, John, I've got 60 seconds, and go. Okay, Beach Bum, neat or on the rocks? Rocks. Column, pot, or blend? Pot. Excellent. Aged or unaged? Aged. Yeah, it's a tough yeah, one. But I, like, I, I like some wood. Molasses or cane juice? Uh, either one, depending on quality. I'll right. let you have it. We danced around this the whole interview, but some people may not know you went to film school at UCLA and have directed in your past. What's your favorite film or one you greatly admire as a filmmaker? Anything by Stanley Kubrick. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, so many others. But oh, you know what? Thin Red Line and The New World by Terrence Malick, I think were great. The movie I probably watched more than any other movie in my life was Big Lebowski. Oh, <laughs> you remind me of the dude a little bit. You got dude vibes. There's no higher compliment than that. <laughs> New shit has come to light, man, and we're going to keep moving forward. Um, have you ever considered a collaboration with Barry Brothers and Rudd, the rum uh, independent bottler in England? They do really good stuff, but, um, you know, they haven't asked. Ed asked. <laughs> well, what and, the hell are we waiting for? I mean, Barry, we could do Barry, 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 and Rudd. I mean, it's right there. It's, it's like a law firm. It's, it's a, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, what's the rum cocktail drink that scares you the most? That scares me the most? The one that yeah. reads best on a modern craft cocktail menu. Uh, <laughs> and I know we've only got 60 seconds, but the better a drink reads the more uninteresting it tastes. These Interesting. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. I like right. that take. Yeah. As a quasi-celebrity with a strong visual brand, when you don't want to be recognized out in public, is it as easy as removing your straw hat and tiki jacket? Is it like <laughs> Superman in reverse? Uh, it's too late. I'm the Colonel Sanders of tiki at this point. <laughs> the Colonel Sanders of tiki. But I am, I am like a turtle without a shell. Without the hat, I can get away with a lot. <laughs> okay. Your favorite rum distillery not located in Jamaica or Guyana? Uh, that would be uh, Foursquare. Uh, you're a self-described professional bum. How many hours a day or a week do you have to be to qualify for that? Ah, well, um, more than I actually am putting in these days. I actually have had to do some work. I regret to say I, I no longer may lay claim to that title. <laughs> Oh, you I relinquished the you, bum title. Yeah, wow. yeah. I, I was going to ask you if you had any openings, but now, no. <laughs> John doesn't want it. Nothing. It's, it sounds like too much those. work. That's time anyway. Um, well done. I was. That was the other thing that occurred to me reading back through all these books. I was like, these these books are so deeply researched and reported, and the writing is so good. The, the, the beach bump yeah. facade is totally not believable anymore once someone reads potions, you know? There's just too much in there. Um, you have, there's some line, and I, I know writers hate this, but 
I want to torture you just for a second. You had this one line. You have a, a gift for simile, I think. And you wrote, if you find this approach to history fetishistic, you are correct. Like a foot worshiper to whom the human body is merely a life support system for toes, to a cocktail freak, the Caribbean's historical timeline is not the painting but the frame. Do you go out of your way to think those up, or do they just come to you? I have to credit all of that to um, aged rum. There was a seminar at Tales of the Cocktail a while ago for cocktail writers, and one of the questions, well, I asked it. I thought it was the elephant in the room. And during the Q&A after the seminar, they were all talking about how they write about cocktails. Yeah. And I asked the question, I said, you guys write about drinks all day. Do you drink while you write? And everybody dodged the question. And no. And I said, no, no, I would never do that. And I was thinking to myself, <laughs> lying stack. And, and then it was Wayne Curtis. Wayne Curtis said, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's that, that that I think we can blame the rum on that. That's the secret. Um, well, yeah. we should credit we should credit the rum for that. It gave credit me a, it gave me a great laugh as I as I went back through the book. Um, well, yeah. well, thank you. I appreciate that. And Will, now you know my secret of how I come up with the rapid fire questions. <laughs> is, it age, is it aged rum or unaged <laughs> aged rum? rum. <laughs> it could be either, really. Either, yeah. <laughs> All right, um, Jeff. I know you got to run. This is uh, a delight. Really enjoyed catching up with you here and. Yeah. Um, I don't know. At some point, John and I will end up in New Orleans at the same time, and we'll uh, we'll all come down to Latitude Twenty Nine and pick out one of your finely curated rums Heck from the yeah. menu to enjoy together. Um, hit me up. Sounds good. <laughs> all right, guys. It was a pleasure. Really enjoyed this. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. yeah thanks for really taking the time, it. Jeff. We appreciate. Gotta it. Gotta go. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Rumcast. We hope that you enjoyed this interview with Jeff Barry, the bum. As those, Such a fun one. Yeah. yeah uh, as those close to him like to say, and maybe those not so close to him. He's the bum. He's great. Um, but yeah, we had a blast. I hope that came through with this interview. Super enjoyable conversation. And if uh, anything stuck out to you, please let us know. Send us an email. If you have any questions, anything more you'd like to learn that we didn't get to, maybe we can hunt down some answers for you. So, uh, and, and let us know who else from the rum world you would like for us to track down and, and drag onto this show or program as john likes to uh, lovingly <laughs> refer to it as send us an email host at rumcast.com that's h-o-s-t at rumcast.com or as always you can find us on social media john where are the best places to do that yep at the rumcast uh, instagram facebook or twitter and so we're all over the place there and you can comment uh, or like uh, one of those posts and you know feel free to share we, we're okay with people sharing we we enjoy that and we like seeing things go around there was some really cool posts being shared this week uh of the previous episode that we did uh and so i i love to see when the word is continuing to spread amongst rum and we try to talk to the great rum people too so it's really fun to see how the tendrils of the internet continue to to work through uh trying to get our tendrils in more places (laughs) i I don't know like a big rum octopus just uh reaching everywhere and we're gonna leave that uh that imagery right there and we're gonna keep going (laughs) you know speaking of tendrils though i'm not gonna leave it there speaking of tendrils 
Um, you know who has tendrils everywhere? Ed Hamilton. As I was just thinking like through this episode and us talking, and we talked about St. Lucia Distillers and Ed Hamilton, man, I just want to be like... Ed's got tendrils. Yes. I want to yeah. be Ed Hamilton in a way because, man, you it, you know what it is? We need to have some sort of law about talking about rum that the more rum conversation happens, the more likelihood Ed Hamilton's name is going to come six, into six, it. Six degrees of Ed Hamilton? <laughs> yes. I think the and rum world's small enough that it could be like, you know... <laughs> Everyone's within three degrees of Ed Hamilton, probably. It might be three degrees. <laughs> <laughs> three degrees of Ed Hamilton. That's the next run from him coming. But yeah, man, he, I just, uh, you know, I, lo- I look up to him and all he's done in, in over his long career. And it definitely, when so- one speaks of tendrils, you, you must mention Ed <laughs> Hamilton. <laughs> that's uh, a new sentence, for sure. The first time that's ever been uttered. Well, I think that's a, a, as good a note as any to end this episode on. But uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And if you do want more rumcast as we like to remind everyone you can go to patreon.com slash the rumcast that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the rumcast we're doing bonus episodes which we're about to record one right now right after this we're doing happy hours which we're gonna go to that right after the recording of the bonus episode we've got a little yes. marathon tonight uh we're gonna yeah. talk some rum we're gonna hang out with rumcast listeners it's gonna be awesome so if you would like to get in on that just go to patreon.com slash the rumcast you can join in and support the show that way we always appreciate it so john with all that out of the way let us um uh, retract our tendrils and close out this episode i'll see you next time think you can retract tendrils i don't think it works (laughs) like that once they're out there they're out there